Welcome to episode 142 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast from the faculty of Mid-America, where they discuss all things Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchbord, Director of Marketing here at the seminary. Thank you for tuning in. Well, I have the pleasure today of having with me here on campus at Mid-America uh, Associate Professor of Old Testament, Reverend Andrew Compton, uh, soon, Lord willing, to be Dr. <laughs> Andrew Compton, boy, uh, boy. who is currently working on a dissertation on the uh, book of Ezekiel. Thank you for joining me, Reverend Andrew Compton. <laughs> it's Yeah, great to be back here, Jared. Absolutely. What we'd like to explore today and in the next few episodes is what exactly it is that you're exploring in the book of Ezekiel, you know, the book of Ezekiel can be uh, quite a bizarre uh, piece of work for uh, lay people in the church uh, to tackle. Uh, we think of the many visions that Ezekiel had, the acts that he performed to um, show the nation of Israel what was to come, all these, uh, you mm-hmm. know, bizarre things that can happen. Um, but just to enlighten us what led you to work on this particular project. Um, yeah. And then in the next couple of episodes, uh, we'll be diving in um, and exploring just a little bit more on exactly what it is that you're uh, writing on. Yeah, no, thank you. It is it is funny. A lot of people, this has been a long haul. <laughs> I, I started here at the seminary in, in 2016 and then the couple of years I I sort of got my bearings about what I would uh, pursue my terminal degree in. And so I think now yeah, about I'm in year four of, of this uh, dissertation process through the University of Pretoria. So over these last couple of years then, I've gotten a lot of questions. What are you writing about? And I usually respond by saying, well, how much time do you have? <laughs> so if you if you want a short answer, I say Ezekiel. If you have a little more time, I'll say Ezekiel's priestly identity, and it can get really out of hand really quick from yeah, there. Right. But anyway, so it is Ezekiel, you're right. And uh, yeah, it's funny, before we even get into it, I mean, something I did find when I was first starting to play around with Ezekiel, play around, it makes it sound like it's a ball, right? <laughs> I don't mean that. But you know, when I was first starting to think about it a bit more, and that was actually when I was still pastoring in California, I I'd, I'd okay. spent some time doing a Sunday school class on it at Christ Reformed Church. I don't think there's recordings of them. If there are, I'm sure they were terrible. So, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but I did find that, um, it, you know, it, it does have that reputation of being such an insane book yep. to some people. Yeah. And and I think a big part of it is because of that opening vision. In fact, the rabbis even thought that, um, that uh, you had to be a certain age to read Ezekiel 1, uh, or else you would die. And there was even a story of, of a little boy who accidentally read Ezekiel 1 and fire came out from the scroll and killed him. Okay. Now, I, <laughs> I I doubt the veracity of that. Sure. I doubt it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't have proof that it didn't happen. It, it just doesn't seem very likely to me. Um, but it, it just really illustrates the how the book is perceived. But what's interesting is once you get through visions like that, you know, chapter one through the the sign acts, sign acts. I always say, but uh, but yeah. th- those are two words: sign dash acts. Oh, not not s y n or a n x or right. whatever. It's not that nasal spray. Sign acts. It's, <laughs> it's the uh, um, no the the action prophecy. Some yes. people will call them. Okay, but you you know you start to get into some pretty straightforward sounding prophetic oracles, and a lot of it doesn't read very different than Isaiah or Jeremiah. Um, you do get some very uh, 
very difficult passages. Uh, for example, Ezekiel 16 is very graphic. It, it's very difficult to read that, um, especially considering how um, how Israel as a as is portrayed as a woman um, b- being mistreated. You know, and and so there are those kinds of things. We'll fully grant it. But a lot of the book reads very straightforward, just like you'd expect Isaiah. So I think for a lot of people, you know, I, I suggest if you can if you can just forge through the parts that aren't very familiar, maybe earmark them for later study, you'll find numerous accounts that really do sound like pretty ordinary prophecy. You know, in the 30s, you get a lot of these prophecies of restoration. You know, you get, um, oh, Isaiah um, yeah, 36... Uh, and Isaiah, Isaiah 36 in particular, is vision of the new heart. And Isaiah 37, uh, the prophecy, the vision of the dry bones. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, yes, it's a vision, but it, it feels very, it feels a little more familiar when yep. you read those. So, um, but he was a unique guy. He had his own historical concerns. Um, he was bringing a prophecy to exiles, and. So the contours are a little different from Isaiah. Okay. And his use of biblical earlier biblical texts is a little different. So it's a unique book, but but it's I, I think one that's gotten a bit of a bad reputation mm-hmm. as well, just because it's hard to to get into it. Um now we Leviticus is like that too. You yeah. know, it's a lot of it's a lot of these uh these laws and purity and things that that seem very foreign to us. And then all of a sudden we get to like um what is it? Chapters nine and ten, I think, uh, uh, where you know Nadab and Abihu's um, death, and all of a sudden you're in narrative, and you're reading through through Leviticus, going, "Oh, this sounds like I'm reading Exodus again, or maybe the early chapters in Exodus." And so, a lot of Bible books will do that. But anyway, I don't. I'm not here to just defend your reading of Ezekiel. I trust our listeners believe it is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. They are right for believing that, and I'm sure they will dutifully. Uh, slog through it in due time, but I do hope that they'll uh, not be put off by it, and and maybe take the time to earmark the hard passages, and and then um and and really relish, as it were, in the um more straightforward passages. But how did I get here, though? You're probably like, how did I get to Ezekiel? So after seminary, I did start uh, graduate work, and I I spent a year at one institution with an Ezekiel scholar who had just finished a commentary on it. And then from there, I went to the University of California, and I was actually starting to lean toward writing writing a dissertation on the genealogies of the Book of Chronicles, and that is already starting to cue our listeners into what kind of a strange person I am. Is there too not not exactly the part of Chronicles that most people want to read, even if they do read Chronicles? But there were a few reasons for that, and and I'll um, not get not get derailed from that. But you know, in God's timing. Uh, there were needs in the church I was serving. Uh, there were just other other things that that were weighing on me that um, caused me to finish my master's degree at UCLA. I'd taken all my doctoral coursework, the full the full slate of of seminars, uh, but decided to uh, stop studying there um, and then serve uh, the church full time, which I did until I came here. Um, so in that way, as I, I put ended up putting Chronicles on hold, although I did a little bit more reading. Um, I think just on the side, I did a an academic paper presentation for a, an ETS meeting once. And another thing I did then is I began a doctorate of ministry program at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and spent a, a summer doing courses there. And my idea there is I had pivoted 
my further study toward counseling, which is what I was doing chiefly in my church. But I wanted to look at how we can use Old Testament narratives in pastoral counseling without falling into exemplaristic kinds of readings. You know, something that would still remain robustly redemptive historical, robustly biblically theological, robustly Vossian and Ritterbossian, right? Um, but would not neglect how um, how even these accounts of of our forefathers in the faith, how those even make us wise unto salvation and and are beneficial to us in our pilgrimage. So uh, that that had been on my mind, but then in coming here, then okay, what do I what do I look at? And that's when I started to to pivot back toward Ezekiel. And so here we are now. How this topic? I mean, one thing you have to understand about biblical studies in or doctoral degrees in biblical studies. There's very different models. There's very different kinds of schools that are doing that. But generally, it's not like just writing a commentary on a book. You're you're looking at a theme, typically a theme from a book of the Old Testament or a book of the New Testament, although that can change. There are some, some broad, broadly canonical considerations. You know, for example, my colleague here, uh, Dr. Menninger, did his dissertation on a particular theme within Romans, what, 1 to 3, I think it was. And that yep. and, and that's pretty common, right? You you really need to zero zero in, and so uh, so I was zeroing in on Ezekiel, and something that came out several years ago was this idea of uh, identity theory. Now all of a sudden everybody's you know buzzers are going off. Uh oh, yeah, man. Uh-oh. What are you, you, you going with this? We're getting woke here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's right there's a whole range of identity theories. And for example, there's something called social identity theory, and it just explores how societies, how how a society, whether it's a small society of eight people at a workplace or a society of of you know forty six people who are at a family reunion every year or a society, you know, right? It just, but it looks at how how they forge an identity and how you can observe the strategies they use in creating cohesion among that society, you know, whether it's a whole country or whether it's a, a small organization. Well, one of the essays I came across in a book on identity theory and research was something I had never thought of, but it was this essay on um, uh, occupational identity. I went, okay. Well, that's interesting. Now, remember... The uh, Reformed theologians have often uh, thought very deeply about Christian vocation, right? Our, a Christian theology of work. How do we bring glory to God in our various callings? And that was actually one of the, the great breakthroughs in the Reformation was insisting that all of us had a calling, a vocatio, a, a vocation, uh, not just the clergy. Um, and so that was interesting to see a sort of, uh, as it were, secular um, sociological or secular psychology approach to work identity. Well, all of a sudden that that bridge to something a former professor of mine had written about Ezekiel's priestly identity. Hmm. And there was a little collection of studies that were written starting in the late 1990s in through about 2005. The first was an article in the Journal of Biblical Literature uh, by Margaret O'Dell about Ezekiel and and she was arguing that he, by means of very priestly sounding actions in the sign acts and in the calling, he was exchanging his priestly identity for a prophetic identity, 
he's kind of pitting the two identities against each other mm-hmm. and saying he relinquished his priestly identity and now was was fully a prophet. And others in coming years sort of picked that up and and tried to explore uh, that. In the year 2000, uh, the Society of Biblical Literature had a section devoted uh, to this question. And in the, the seminar papers published in 2000, there's, I think, three essays looking at priestly identity in Ezekiel. And then a few years later, um, a book came out called Ezekiel's Hierarchical World, which was a symposium of essays from the Society of Biblical Literature that were looking at a range of things in Ezekiel, but there was a collection of four essays that were looking at his priestly identity, one of them by my former seminary professor, Ian Duguid. And uh, now most of these are all secular essays, although uh, Dr. Duguid is, is very much a Reformed confessional believer, uh, and so his um, his essay... Uh, of course, I was excited to read because I, I appreciated him so much as a professor. But the other essay um, that many of them were interacting with was one by uh, Marvin Sweeney, a professor I had uh, for a year at Claremont, who was arguing that um, that whereas this initial article by Odell was correct about these priestly themes, she was actually going a step too far by claiming that the priestly themes were evidence of him somehow relinquishing a priestly identity. And and Dr. Sweeney was saying, no, he's actually uh, acting out or he's engaging in his prophetic call through his priestly identity. Mm. Now, that might sound like we're splitting hairs, and I'm sure some of our readers are going, huh? Well, here's, again, part of it. Remember, this is what a PhD in biblical studies is trying to do, is to really pursue very, very narrow questions and try to rigorously analyze those questions. I mean, that's why um, getting a doctorate is not for everybody, and it's why it is an exercise uh, that is designed to to show a rigorous use of of questioning and a rigorous use of of interpretive tools. Well, I jumped into that, um, that, I called that the flurry. I refer to it as the flurry of studies. Uh, all of all of going through even a very um, very interesting dissertation uh, by T.J. Betts that was done under Daniel Block when when uh, when Doctor Block was still at the uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and um, and Betts and Duguid and a, a number of others have focused on how Ezekiel in exile, even though he doesn't have the temple anymore, even though he doesn't have the altar, he is retaining a priestly identity by focusing on the kinds of priestly actions that were available to him in exile, namely teaching Torah. So Dr. Betz's dissertation was titled, Ezekiel the Priest, a Custodian of Torah. And um, there's there's a lot of very um, very sound analysis in, in Dr. Betz's work. Um, I, I push back against him in places just because that's um, part of what you do with a dissertation. <laughs> Uh, but I, um, but I found it to be a very stimulating study, and I'm I'm excited for my brother and and colleague. I haven't met him, but I'm, I treat him that way. Uh, who has um who's worked in these areas? But what what I decided to do with my dissertation is to get back to this flurry, which really ended in 2005, and I couldn't figure out why. It seemed to me it ended at a stalemate because. There was a range of reasons why people were affirming Ezekiel's priestly identity and a range of reasons people were rejecting it. So, for example, um, the, the real voice was uh, against it was uh, was Dr. Baruch Schwartz of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who wrote uh, not only a chapter in that symposium, but had published a lecture he gave at, I believe, Harvard uh, or Yale that he very graciously sent me. Um, 
you know, explaining to him why all of this data showed him merely to be a former priest. And so I was trying to to say, well, how might we arbitrate this discussion? Do we have any other interpretive tools available to us? Um, and, and that might maybe rejuvenate the discussion, you know, and keep it from having ended in 2005. Now, interestingly, I, I talked with a few of the people, Dr. Andrew Mine, Marvin Sweeney, a few people like that who wrote part of the flurry and asked, you know, why did it end? And pretty much everyone I talked to said, ah, just we got busy with other projects. <laughs> and so it wasn't like there was a big angry outburst and everybody walked away. That's mm-hmm. not how it works in in like real rigorous academic study of, of Scripture. But um, but I still thought this might be, this whole idea of job identity might be a way to think through the plausibility of conceiving of Ezekiel as a priest with a priestly work identity and refracting that work identity through the new circumstances of exile that prevented him from working as he had been planning. Remember, he went into exile in his, in the 30th year, which I think clearly refers to the, his, his at age 30, mm-hmm. when ordinarily he would have entered the priesthood. Right. Well, you don't enter the priesthood on a on a whim, right? He he likely he spent his growing up time in a priestly family, preparing for that day when he would enter the priesthood. You know, I mean, this was common in the ancient world, common up till very recently. It's still common. If your dad did this kind of job, you would do that kind of job. You know, if your if your family was involved in that kind of industry, that's what you went into. Only rarely did you do something else. And it's reasonable that even within the the the, um, the clan of Levi, or the tribe of Levi, specifically within those priestly circles, the Zadokites and, and such, you would have expected him to be preparing for that day, and yet in the same year he should have started his job, as it were. Where does he find himself? By the Kebar River in exile. I mean, you and I both went to Dort College, right? And mm-hmm. we, we spent our, our four years of study gearing up for a profession and what would that have been like to graduate and and be told you will never work in that profession devastating yeah it's like i mean what what time yeah i mean you'd think like what if they banned television or banned you know audio recording the year you graduate you'd be like now what exactly well the thing is that's not crisis yeah well and that's not so uncommon in our in our day because of uh this this uh this reality of forced migration throughout the world. Now, we talk about immigration here in the U.S. a lot, and it can be politically fraught, um, which is unfortunate because forced migration is a, is a real concern. Now, I'm not trying to weigh in politically either here. There's concerns about the migration issue in our country, and that can be debated in other venues. But um, think, for example, of Syria. I can think of Syria a few years ago, or, or Ukraine right now. Right There are, there are migrants fleeing a war zone. Um, many of them come with specialized work credentials, and now they're in countries that may or may not recognize those work credentials. What do they do? There's interesting um, research from the discipline of vocational psychology that's not a psychology like a Freudian psychology, right? It's like a social psychology. It's something more broadly. Uh, there's been some really good work on uh a Christian use of sociology, like Vern Poitras has a good book, Redeeming Sociology, uh, Russell Hedendorf and Matthew Voss. Uh, Voss is now at, at Covenant College 
uh, has a book called Hidden Threads, right? There's been a lot of good work looking at Christian use of social psychology and sociology. Just uh, just for our listeners' sake, when you hear me saying I'm using psychology, I'm not doing something like Jungian on Ezekiel. But there's been a lot of this vocational psychological work looking at refugees. And there's been studies, for example, of teachers. There's a study of teachers in Scotland who came from um, from like the Middle East. And they came to Scotland because they were escaping war. And Scotland took them in, but they weren't credentialed as educators. And so they're doing good work, but not work that their heart was in. They're driving taxis. They're, um, they're working as custodians. They're, they're engaged in, in business. They're working in companies, right? Those are all good work. And, and you ask those people, and they indicate they're grateful for the good work. But they train to be a teacher for a reason. Same thing with pediatricians. There are stories of doctors and pediatricians in particular who studied because they wanted to help heal children. Mm-hmm. And now in the new country they're at, their, creden- their medical credentials aren't recognized. Mm-hmm. So what do they do? The vocational psychology has not only seen that people identify with their work very closely, and I actually think we were created by God to do that. When he said, fill the earth and subdue it, there seems to be a work mandate built into our, our human nature in the image of God. Um, not, I don't want to go off into that too much, but I think there's something what you can hopefully hear why this should have some uh, some good rings of plausibility to it. One thing, though, vocational psychologists have, have noted is how people who are doing jobs that are not exactly what they feel called to do, whether calling because they're believers and they feel God's called them or calling in a more nebulous, secular sense, right? Um, that's what's interesting is that the secular psychological guild has adopted that word calling as well, you know, admitting it's it's reformed, admitting it came from Luther, but fine, you know, they, they're, they're able to emphasize something we recognize, that people have a deep desire to do a particular kind of work sometimes. And they've noticed a set of strategies that get used to retool one's job when they're unable to do it, so that now... An example in the literature is a woman who was working in the hospital on the maternity ward, and she um, she was doing the custodial side of things. I believe she was a migrant, and so she came. She she had not trained to be a nurse, but she was uh, unsettled anyway. She was no longer in her home country now. I think in the U.S. is where this story took place, and was just a wonderful presence for this. One of the one of the writers was a psychologist who wrote this vocational psychology book and was just a neat presence for him and his wife as they were as they just had their baby and she came and just doted over the newborn. Um, you know, uh, just said some very encouraging and sweet things to them as new parents. And so he got to ask her, you know, tell me about your job. You know, you're you're you do um you do custodial work here. And she goes, yeah, yeah, I, I guess. But but I'm also here to make people's days better. I'm here to give encouragement to new moms who are scared. I'm here to tell new dads they can do this. I'm here to tell the doctors they're doing a great job. And that that's not in her job description, right? She's not here. That, that's not really what, what the hospital thinks she's there to do. But do you see how she has crafted her job in light of something of an unanswered calling? Yeah. And... Anyway, 
the literature shows numerous examples of this. Now, I can see a listener going, okay, well, that's all well and good, but this is all modern stuff. Hey, vocational psychologists have said the same thing. It's just just the modern thing. Well, a couple of things to note is um, some of these writers, David Bluestein, for example, uh, has noted that the origins of the discipline of vocational psychology can be traced back to the ancient world, um, even to the Judeo-Christian tradition, is what he what he argues. There's an interesting um, book I came across uh, by scholar Sandra Joshel. Uh, it was called Work Identity and Legal Status at Rome, A Study of the Occupational Inscriptions. Now, what is that, you might wonder? Um, this book, it was in the Oklahoma, um, University of Oklahoma Classics series, so pretty dense study, but it's looking at tombs, tomb inscriptions in ancient Rome of basically slaves. And it's noting how many slaves, again, you gotta you gotta think of a slave in the ancient Rome, not like a um, you know, sort of an indentured servant kind of slave. How many of them on their funeral inscriptions indicated the the jobs they did in in, in their indentured status? Their families wanted to identify them as a cupbearer or as a, you know, this kind of employee or that kind of slave or that kind of, right? That's fascinating that there's such an interest and a, and a belief in the importance of one's unique work contribution that presumably these individuals would have been happy to be remembered that way with their funeral inscriptions, and their families wanted them remembered that way. Well, you go even further back into the Old Testament, and I mean, you know, you you have this uh, this um, this fascinating passage even in Genesis four, right? Um, Genesis four verse twenty: Ada gave birth to Yabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Interesting. He's here. Here he is being this job of herding is sort of traced back now through this genealogy to Ada. Um, his brother's name was Ubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. I remember there was a Dutch drum and bugle corps about 20 years ago that came and visited the United States called Ubal. And it was, uh, they're called Ubal after Ubal from the Bible because they were playing brass music and percussion down in Indianapolis. So on the football field, a lot of fun. Goes on, as for Zilla, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama, right? Here's now um, metal forging, um, smithing, right? Uh, it, it goes on. There's all these kinds of, of job descriptions. That's a very small little thing. Um, but you find people's professions mentioned at a number of places in the Old Testament. And it seems that job identity was operative. No, it's not, it's not at the front and center. I'm not claiming that in the dissertation. Um, and, and none of us should be like overreading this. My, my preaching hasn't somehow become job-centered preaching, right, when I'm looking at Genesis 4. But these are the kinds of historical details that are embedded into this account. Um, we also find, interestingly, a number of Hebrew inscriptions from the time of the Old Testament that also relate job titles. There's uh, there's a number of job titles. There's job descriptions. Very interesting uh, situation is the title, the priest, which hopefully you can sense is relevant to what I've been trying to look at with Ezekiel, because there's a number of people whose names are so-and-so the priest. And one really fascinating archaeological find was a, st- a small seal 
like a little uh, thing you would stamp your name into, and it was so-and-so, the priest, and it was mounted on a, on a ring. Why? You could maybe try to argue, well, that's so that they could stamp it with their fist. Okay, um, maybe, maybe it involved administrative work at the temple, you know, getting, receiving of, of offerings or receiving of supplies, right? It, it could be that, but the gold it was embedded in was very flimsy, not exactly like a workplace item. I don't know if you remember the, that movie, uh, Catch Me If You Can. Oh, yeah. Remember, and, and, and he was talking at the end about, you know, he says, oh, this, uh, this, this forged check is from a bank teller. How do you know? It's because the nine and the six are both broken. That mm-hmm. happens when you, he stole it from a bank teller. He, that's what happens on those stamps. Well, you can tell, like they make these stamps to be resilient. Well, this was decorative. Why? Now, we can only speculate, but it's possible at least that you have this priest valuing this priestly identity so much so that it's now part of their ring. I don't know if it did in Canada for you, but we had class rings in high school. <laughs> I did not. You did not. Good for no. you. I, I <laughs> stupidly uh, convinced my parents to let me spend the money on it. <laughs> but mine had things I was interested in, music on one side and the Bible on another, I think. Right? You, you, your jewelry is often endowed with the kinds of things that you value. Yeah. Anyway, we have a number of these kinds of inscriptions that seem to indicate that not only job identity is an important thing across cultures and across history, but that specifically priestly job identities were valuable in Israel. And that would, to my mind, start to tilt the scales of that flurry of debate back toward those people who were arguing, along with Dr. Sweeney, that Ezekiel's prophetic ministry was conducted with a deep sense of his priestly vocational identity. And that helps to explain a number of things we find in, uh, in the book. So when you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll notice sometimes that he does some very interesting sign acts. That's a word that Reverend Compton mentioned in this episode. So in the next week, we'll see how this work of Ezekiel in performing sign acts resembles the work of this priest prophet that he has been commissioned to be. Stay tuned next time for that. To listen to more episodes, you can find us at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.